Hey, I want to thank Pastor Rock before I get started because he enables us to take an entire month out of the year and just focus on missions. That is so rare. Some churches give a week. Some churches give a sermon once or twice a year. He gives an entire month. And it's because of his vision and his passion that we're allowed to do this, that everything in the church focuses on missions for an entire month. Thank you, Pastor Rock. Well, I'm Glenn Hanna. I'm the missions pastor here at ACAC. And uh, last year, you may have heard me speak to you at the beginning of October. And, and at that time, I had the privilege of telling you that we had 24 people who were in the pipeline preparing for missions for a, for a life of ministry uh, overseas. By the end of the month, we had 42. 18 people in the month of October came forward and said, me too. I hear God calling me. He's tugging on my heart. One was a 13-year-old girl. Her father was standing right next to me. And she said, I think God's calling me to missions. I looked at him. He said, yeah, he is. Praise God for that. We're sending out nine new missionaries this, just this year. Some churches our size won't send out nine missionaries in a hundred years. You're sending out nine this year. Praise God for you. Hey, t-shirts. Somebody told me this morning, hey, you're rocking that Miami Vice look. <laughs> it was unintentional. <laughs> Just my wife picked it. So uh, anyhow, the ladies last year, they kept coming up to the booth to buy t-shirts and they said you don't have any girl colors and I said and we're not going to we're sticking with manly colors like pink (laughs) hey the every penny from the sale of these t-shirts goes to student missions opportunities this year we're going to be sending kids to the life conference and at this life conference that that these kids go to They hear messages and the Spirit of God moves upon them. And so many of these kids come back from life just passionate about the Lord and recognizing that God is calling them into full-time ministry either here or overseas. And so your contribution by buying one of these T-shirts will enable some kid who otherwise couldn't go to be able to go. Thank you. Um, I, I encourage you to do that. Well, the theme for this year's Missions Month is the Contested Kingdom. And I want to start by posing a question. Why do we love contests? We do. (laughs) If want to win, that's a good answer. I like that you're talking back to me, by the way. And uh, uh, yes, we love contests. I don't care if it's football, golf, uh, synchronized swimming, uh, figure skating, solitaire. We want to play a game and we want to win, right? Why is that? I have a theory. I think it's because it's in the nature of God. And we are made in the image of God. And there's something in us that just loves competition. Loves to see a winner. We love the challenge. Um, Every game, it has been said, is a ritualized warfare. Now you think about it. What we do is we take competition and that passion for competition and we we put rules around it so nobody gets killed and nobody nobody gets too badly wounded usually Um, but there are rules of engagement and it's a ritualized warfare Um, but it's every game that we play is really only a shadow and it's 
uh, it's a substitution for the real contest that God actually made us for. And so there's a war raging across this planet. Uh, it's the greatest war in the history of the universe. It was started by the devil before time began, but it is going to be completed by Jehovah Sabaoth, the Lord God Almighty. God will accomplish this great victory, but he will use his church to do it. Will you join me in prayer? Father, we give this time to you. I give this time to you. You know me. I'm a carpenter. I'm not a preacher. But I know you can speak through a donkey, so I ask that you, Lord, that you would minister to your people through me. Um, I ask, Father, that you will move on our hearts, that you will make us receptive, that you'll enable us to hear something that maybe we haven't heard before, and that you'd move us to action in a way that maybe we've never been moved before. Enable me, Lord, to represent you well. I pray in Jesus' name. And may the Lord be with you. Thank you. Well, today we're going to be talking about Jesus, the warrior king, the mighty God. We don't like to think about war. And, And we certainly don't like to think about God as a God of war. It scares us. It makes us nervous. It makes us think that... uh, Uh, maybe this is jihad or maybe, you know, it reminds us of Islamic terrorism. And uh, and we'd prefer to think about Jesus as Jesus, the mild baby in the manger, Jesus, the suffering servant in Isaiah 53, Um, Jesus, meek and mild, Jesus, lowly. And we really love Jesus, the prosperity Jesus. Uh, That's the one we really want. But it's interesting that that's not all, that's not the only way that God identifies himself. He identifies himself as the Lord of armies, the Lord of hosts, the almighty God. The terms Lord of hosts, mighty God, warrior hero God appear 261 times in the Old Testament. And in every instance, they refer to Jesus. Jesus is the agent of God. Jesus is the mighty arm of God. Jesus is the word of God and he's the effectuating power of God. In Isaiah 53, 1, you know this verse. Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him as a tender shoot and a root out of dry ground. Who has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The arm of the Lord in the Old Testament always is symbolic of and refers to the power and the initiation of God. And here it clearly links that Jesus is the arm of God. In Isaiah 9, 6, it says, Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. In this instance, the Hebrew name Mighty God is El Gabor. It means the heroic warrior God. Exodus 15, Moses, after the horses and chariots were thrown into the sea, he exalted and he said, the Lord is a man of war. And I love this one. Pay special attention. Isaiah 42, 13. The Lord will go forth like a warrior. He will arouse his zeal like a man of war. And he will utter a shout. Yes, he will rise a war cry and he will prevail against his enemies. I want you to picture something. A football team right before the big game. What are they doing? 
They're pumping themselves up. They're whacking each other on the helmets and thumping the shoulder pads, right? They're getting their adrenaline up. The Lord will arouse his zeal like a man of war. He will utter a shout. This means that he stirs up his blood. He gets his adrenaline up for the battle. Revelation 19, we see Jesus on a white horse arrayed in battle raiment. Why does he reveal himself this way? Why does he think about himself this way? He is a righteous God. He is a holy God. And he hates the enslavement of his people. He hates the the enemies who have enslaved, who have damaged, who have murdered his, his children. And he is indignant about it. But unless you think I'm in any way sanctioning violence against any person, I am not. We do not advocate violence against any person, anywhere, at any time. Ephesians 6 tells us very clearly we do not war against flesh and blood. Our warfare is against the demonic forces that Christ was fighting against. Islam is spread by the sword. It always has been. It has been in recent years. We've seen a lot of it. But the one true God loves people. And so the gospel of Christ is spread by love. One day Christ will judge everybody on the earth. But we don't do that. He does it. This warfare differs from all other wars on the history of the planet. This warfare is not against a human population. It's not against people who deserve the sympathies and the compassion of our God. This warfare is against the malevolent, despicable, despised enemies of our God. The enemies who have enslaved the children of his creation. And it is our warfare, his warfare, to set them free. Everything that Jesus did was an act of war. Let that sink in for a minute. Every healing, every sermon he preached, every demon that he cast out, every response to every religious leader, everything that he did was an act of aggression against Satan and his demons, against his enemy that has enslaved his people and darkened this planet. David Schrock, the Baptist minister, said Christ's birth was was Christ's birth inaugurated a military campaign to end all wars. That little baby lying in that manger was the king of glory. That little mild Jesus was the Lord of the armies of heaven. After Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, he went up to Nazareth, his hometown, the place where he grew up, and he went into the, into the synagogue, and they handed him the book of the, the, scroll, uh, the scroll of Isaiah. And he opened it up to Isaiah 61, and he started to read. And he said this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed it up and he sat down and he said, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your presence. 
This was a proclamation of his purpose. But more than that, it was a declaration of war. It was a declaration of war against the enemies of our God. And in this declaration of war, he gave both the tactics, the strategy, as well as the outcome of the war. Preach the gospel, heal the brokenhearted, bring liberty to the captives, sight to the blind, and freedom to the oppressed. And that's, that's our war plan, too. That is what we do as well in, in our work and in our warfare against the enemies of God. Jesus won his victory perfectly. He finished his job. When he was hanging on the cross before he gave up the ghost at the last, he said, it is finished. And what was finished? The work of salvation was finished. The work of atonement was finished. The work of grace was finished. He accomplished the salvation of your soul on the cross. But the warfare had just begun. Jesus emerged from the grave victorious over death. And he gave commandments to his army. He gave marching orders to his army, the church. His army was, go and take this planet back from the enemy. He did it five times. Four times, once in each of the gospel, and once in Acts 1.8. It was an important message that he was giving. Acts 1.8 says, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, in Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth. The command of our King, our Savior, our God, our the Lord of armies is that we go and possess this planet. Now, the nation of Israel in the Old Testament is sort of a type. It's a symbol of the church in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, Israel was given the promised land to possess, but they had to fight for it. They had to go in and fight for it. The church, likewise, is given the entire planet, but we have to fight for it. Now, an interesting thing, Israel was given the land, promised the land. They were actually given it by God from the great river in Egypt to the great river Euphrates in modern-day Iraq and all the land in between. That area is about 450,000 square miles. It's huge, 450,000 square miles. But at the height of Israel's expansion and possession of the promised land under Solomon, they only ever possessed about 45,000 square miles. They only possessed one-tenth of what God had already given them and promised to them. He said that you will possess every place that your foot trods. Why? What happened? They got comfortable. They started eating those big grapes. (laughs) Milk and honey. They had great produce and they were doing pretty well. And they thought, this is good enough. I'm, I'm pretty happy here. I think I'm okay. Good luck. Go see what you can do for yourself. You want to go to the Euphrates, go ahead. They quit. And they gave up on all of the promises of God. Likewise, the church, the Western church, and I'm not talking about UACAC. You're an amazing church. You really are. 
But the Western church is comfortable. They've quit. They've quit fighting. We got our cars. We're doing pretty well. So those people are going to hell. It's okay. You know, it's God's problem, not mine. And so we quit fighting. We have the blessings of Canaan and we're satisfied. But 2 Peter 3.9 says that God is not willing that any should perish. But that all should come to repentance. When we do not engage in this warfare, we leave captive we leave people captive to Christ's enemies. Ephesians 6 once again says, We do not war against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the forces of spiritual wickedness in high places. Our fight is against demonic and satanic forces over, that rule over countries, religions, and philosophies. This is a war of conquest. It is not a defensive war. Satan is on the defensive. And he's afraid of you. He's afraid of you. He's afraid that someday you're going to realize who you are. Do you not know that you will judge angels? Jesus said to his disciples one day, he said, who do people say that I am? And he said, well, John the Baptist, uh, Elijah. And he said, who do you say that I am? And Peter, uncharacteristically bold, he said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And you can almost hear Jesus' enthusiasm, his excitement. Finally, somebody got it. And he said, Peter, flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you, but my father who's in heaven, and upon this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. That's almost a good translation, by the way. In the Aramaic, it says, gates of hell cannot resist it. The gates of hell cannot withstand the church. What does that mean? We have a picture of a gate. I'm going to get out of the way so you can see it. There it is. That's what he's talking about. It's a fortified gate. It is a gate. This is a gate in a medieval walled city. And you entered through that gate, and these are here for defense of the gate. Satan is hiding behind these walls. And he thinks he's safe from you. But God has given you the power to kick in those gates of hell. Satan is on the defensive. In 1 John 4, 4, John tells us, The greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. In 1882, Friedrich Nietzsche said something really stupid. Friedrich Nietzsche was a German existential philosopher. My grandfather, once upon a time, told me, he said, if you educate a fool, the best you can come up with is an educated fool. That's the case here. So Friedrich Nietzsche said, uh, God is dead. When I was in college many hundreds of years ago, um, the, some of the best reading on campus was in the student union in the men's room on the graffiti on the wall. Some of the wisest stuff you could find. I let, used, great people used to write stuff on the walls there. And they never erased it. Anyhow, somebody one day, I was an atheist at the time, and I read it, and it said, 
Jesus is alive. And about a week and a half later, somebody wrote underneath it, God is dead. And signed Nietzsche underneath it. About a week and a half after that, somebody wrote, Nietzsche is dead. And signed God underneath it. Existential philosophy, like every other system that denies the deity of Christ, is a fortress. It is a lie from hell. It is guarded by Satan. And we have the power to kick in these gates of hell. The gates of hell are governments, false religions, dark cultures that blind people to the truth that God loves them and wants them found. Christ has given us the power to kick in the gates of hell and plunder Satan and his demons and rescue the people of God who are held captive. I think I'm on number 10 now. Yep. There's number eight up there. This is the greatest contest in the history of the universe. It's the greatest game. The greatest warfare in history. And Christ has put you in the game. Christ has put you in on the first string. In a front line. God has given you the privilege to, to wage his warfare. And you get to wage warfare against some of the greatest beings that have ever been created. These are angelic beings. These are fallen angelic beings. But these are angelic beings created with great power. And you get to kick in the gates of hell and plunder what they have. You can't lose. Here's a thought. I can't prove it. But I want you to think about it anyhow. God could kill Satan in an instant. It would never, wouldn't take an, a bit of his energy. He wouldn't be less God after killing Satan than he would before. It just, there, he spoke him into existence. Gone. This malevolent, hateful, arrogant, murderous being. God could kill him in an instant, but he doesn't do it. Why? I think it's because it gives God greater glory and it brings greater humiliation to Satan when you do it. Amen. I want you to think about this. Satan showed up in the Garden of Eden already rebellious against God. He was already malevolent. He was already hateful. And he showed up just for the purpose of corrupting mankind and cursing this earth. And he succeeded. God could have ended it there. But instead, what did he do? He gathered up some of that cursed earth. That earth that was tainted by the, the, the curse of sin. And he formed it into a person, you, me. And he made it to live. And he breathed his breath of his own life into it. And he grew it and nurtured it until it grew into a person. And then he redeemed it. And he filled it with his own Holy Spirit. And he gave it the very power of the universe. Filled in that person. And he said, now you, you organized dirt. You dirt that was formerly cursed. I want you to go crush my enemies. Is that a magnificent irony? Do we serve a magnificent God? 
This is a beautiful thing. Some are going to say, I don't believe that. I want you to turn to, if you, you won't turn. I'll tell you what it says. Romans 16, 20. This interesting little verse. You know how God sticks little verses someplace where it feels like they don't belong. And I know you've come across that. Well, this is in the salutations in Roman. It's, the, it's at the end of Romans. And he's saying, uh, greet Priscilla and Aquila, greet Adronicus and greet Epinetus and blah, blah, blah. And then there's this verse in 1620. It's, it seems out of place. And it says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. He doesn't say under my feet. He said, he'll crush him under your feet. What a privilege. Our blood should be up for this battle. Like Jesus, we should arouse our zeal like a man of war. We should be pumped for the fact that we get to do the work of God. Passionate to vanquish the enemies of God. In Luke chapter 10, verse 19, uh, Jesus said this. He says, I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions. That's a metaphor for demons and to overcome all the power of the enemy, all the power of the enemy and nothing will harm you. Nothing can harm you. There's a young woman that we're going to be sending to a very dark place in this planet. Um, You're not allowed to be a Christian there. And, and she's on her way and her dad, she was talking to her dad recently and her dad had tears in his eyes. She said, what's up dad? And he said, you're just going so far away and you're going to be gone so long. And you can imagine his heart, his, his heart's aching for this. And her response to her dad is, Daddy, this is what God has designed me to do. And I have to go do it. But I know this girl. She doesn't just have to go do it. She can't wait to go do it. She's eager to go do it. She's chomping at the bit to go do it. Uh, one of my new favorite movies is Act of Valor. It's not a new movie, I know. It's, I don't watch many movies. But um, in this, Chief Dave is writing a letter to his friend's son. His friend was killed in combat. And he's writing this. And I know this isn't scripture, but I just like it. It says, war is a country of will. There's no room for sympathy. If you're not willing to give up everything, you've already lost. It's costly. We are commissioned into the armies of God, and we are to execute the will of God in the name and in the power of God. This hub that you're building out here, you're building, you're paying for it, you're building, you agreed that uh, we need it, and you're building it. It's not just a nursery for our babies. It's a boot camp. It is. It's a training ground for the next heroic warriors of God's army that will go across this planet trampling on demons and scorpions. Amen. We're not just here to bide our time. We're not just here to make ourselves comfortable. We're sending out nine people just this year. 2 Corinthians 10.4 says, The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. Now, if you go look at any commentary, it's going to say something like this. Uh, We use the word of God. We use the power of God to address the sins, the biases, the the nonconformities to the will of God in our own lives. And, And it is 
these fortresses are the things in our own heads that we need to overcome to, to achieve sanctification. Something like that. And I agree. I've seen that in my own life. So have you. You know that that's true, that the Word of God is transforming. I'm not disputing that in any way. But it means so much more than that. And I would love to tell you the stories of hundreds of stories of people just from this church that that are out on the field who are knocking down fortresses, who are waging war, and they're using prayer and the Word of God, faith, fasting, spiritual authority, and all the other weapons of our warfare to do just this, to tear down fortresses around the globe. It's exciting and it's moving, but I'm not going to do it. I'm going to leave that to our president, John Stumbo, next week to do, and I urge you don't miss it. It is moving what he's going to present to you. I have a few minutes left, and so I'm going to say something that's going to trample on somebody's feet here. I know it ahead of time, so forgive me. But I want to say something. You've heard people pray this prayer. Lord, put a hedge of protection about me because I'm going to be traveling to Turtle Creek. I don't like that. I don't like that prayer. As a matter of fact, the hair on the back of my neck sticks up when I hear it. There's only one place that I can find in Scripture where hedge of protection is used. And it's used by Satan in the first book of Job. Whenever God addresses Satan and he says, have you considered my servant Job? He is perfect in all of his ways. And Satan says, will you put a hedge about him? You can almost hear the contemptuousness in his voice, the disrespect, the mocking, sneering attitude that he has towards God. He is, he is sneering at the protection of God for his own people. And he calls it a hedge. We don't hope in a hedge. We hope in God. God is our strong tower. God is our rock. God is our salvation. He is our protector. Psalm 91 says, He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I don't even know what that means, the secret places of the Most High, but I want to find out. It's worth a sermon. I will say to the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress. My God, in Him will I trust. We don't trust in a hedge. I don't care who builds it. It is God. It is our residence in God. It is our dwelling in God that is our protection. And if you go on to read Psalm 91, he says he will, it, he will protect you from the snare of the fowler, from the perilous pestilence, from the, under his wings he will cover you, under his pinions, and he shall shield you. And he shall be your shield and your buckler. You will not fear the terror by night or the arrow that flies by day. The pestilence that walks in the darkness nor the destruction that lays waste at noonday. A thousand will fall at your side and ten thousand at your right hand. And yet it will never come near you. Only your eyes will look and see the outcome for the wicked. It says, you shall tread upon the lion and on the cobra. The young lion, the serpent, shall trample underfoot. God is our protection in the midst of the warfare. I never want it to be said to my wife, Patty, I found your husband. He's out back cowering behind a hedge. (laughs) 
We don't hide behind the hedge. We go boldly into the warfare because God is our strong tower. Hallelujah. That's right. Praise God. When I go out, I'm 66 years old. And I'm going to die soon. I don't know when. I hope not tomorrow. But when I go out, I want to go out slaying dragons. I want to go out treading on scorpions and on snakes, on cobras and on young lions. I want to go out doing the warfare of our God and setting the captives free. Not hiding behind the hedge. Amen. Well, it occurs to me, somebody in here probably doesn't know this amazing God. This violent God who has been violent on your behalf, who has loved you since before you were born, who loves you now, who has been pursuing you every day of your life, who's been seeking after you, who has been protecting you. It's time you yielded to him. There is one God and there's one mediator between man and God, and that's the man Christ Jesus. Turn your life over to Jesus. There are lots of people here that will tell you how to do it. I hope I haven't offended anybody. Um, I hope that we've been moved a little bit towards passion for God. Just let's do a little more. Will you pray with me? Father, we long to please you. We long to be all that you call us to be. We ask that you would bust up our fortresses. Anything that we have that would keep us from acknowledging who you are and going where you tell us to go and doing what you tell us to do. I pray that we would fight that resistance inside ourselves as well as out there. Make us warriors, Lord. We desire to be conquerors, more than conquerors, through you who strengthen us. We bless your holy name. Thank you, O our God. Amen.